Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Upholding Valor. I'm Jill Atwood. I'm the Director of Communications for the VA Rocky Mountain Region, and this podcast is all about veterans, their sacrifice, their service. It's about VA, VA benefits. It's about educating veterans, their their family members, about the resources, programs, benefits, health care, everything that our veterans have uh, deserve for their their time and their service to our country and their sacrifice. I feel like this is a really special one. Uh, here at VA, we've been celebrating the 50th anniversary, 50th commemoration of the Vietnam War, and I have two veterans with me today, uh, Vietnam veterans who want to talk about their time in that in that time of our life, in that era during the Vietnam War, uh, both as it was happening and then when they came home. I want to talk a little bit about that, the history of VA and how things have changed since then and really quite to the point, have, have we made up for it as a society, um, as, as a VA healthcare entity we've come so far? Have we made up for the treatment of Vietnam veterans when they come home? I mean, I was just a baby. I don't remember uh, but I've heard and read and, and studied, and so I'm so anxious to hear from these gentlemen, Jack Johnson, and I have Steve Presswich. Thanks, guys, for Thank being you here. Thank you for having us. Delighted I, to be here. Yeah, I so appreciate this, and I know this is kind of an emotional topic, and so we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, if you know, if you're comfortable talking about certain things, sure, let's let's hear it. But let's just kind of see where this this goes. And, and I, I talked to these two gentlemen about a week ago when they started telling me their stories. And I'm like, we have got to do a podcast on this. I've got to document and get some of these stories down so we don't forget. And we have come far, thank goodness. So Jack, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, first. Um, tell me about your service in Vietnam uh, uh, briefly and, and, and what you did during the war. Well, let's go back to 1966. And uh, one day the postman came, and along with that was a, a greetings from my Uncle Sam. Right. And he invited me to join the United States Army. You were voluntold. Voluntold. Yes. <laughs> That's right, voluntold. And, but, you know, I was a patriot. I was raised on a farm, uh, and farmers were all pretty well patriots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to go. I was prepared. Uh, I recall going up to... Uh, uh, Fort Douglas, uh, right here in Salt Lake City, where I was inducted, and um, and probably that day there were 200 of us inducted the same day, mm-hmm. and uh, we all trained together. We shipped out together. Went to Fort Lewis, Washington first, and then from there to uh, Fort Ord, California, where we did advanced training and jungle training. You were Army. I was Army. Okay. Preparation for Vietnam. Interesting uh, story which fits into this uh, because it's just by happenstance that you get sent to Vietnam or you get sent somewhere else. The morning that we, uh, one morning we got up and we were going to to Chow and they said, well, when you come back from Chow, there will be underwear on your bed. If it's white, you're going to Germany. If it's camouflage, you're going to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And of course, mine was camouflage. Right. So we, um, within uh, 48 hours of that, we were loading on uh, aircraft flying out of uh, uh, Travis Air Force Base on our way to uh, Tonsonut Air Force Base in Saigon. And we weren't allowed to tell our parents. We weren't allowed to tell anyone wow. that we were going. It was a secret uh, 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 
group I was flying over. And, and you didn't know how long you'd be gone? No, I, we knew it was going to be a full period, uh, okay. one year. and uh, But we really didn't know much more about it than that. But when we got there, uh, there was a different world that none of us had ever seen before. There's a there's a special odor about war, I think, mm-hmm. but in and Vietnam, when you come down from flying over, and you go through about a ten thousand foot level, all of a sudden you have a new permeation going through the airship, and and it's a smell that you'll have the rest of the year that you're over there. Okay. And you never get rid of it. Can you describe it? A sewer. Okay. Much like a sewer. Okay. And um, so. Then when we landed, uh, just the very next day was Tet. And Tet is a day that they destroyed many of our, our veterans. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tet is a time of year. It's, uh, it's their uh, New Year's Eve. And, uh, it, and if Vietnam or uh, the Asians felt that time that they could win that war, then the rest of the year was going to be good. So my second day in country was one of uh, seeing fire and hearing fire and and uh, it was it was upside down for the rest of that year. Wow. Tell me what you did in Vietnam. What your what your job was specifically? And uh you you talked about the smell. Um tell me any other memories, things that stand out in your mind. Sure. That you still Sure. Remember like they were yesterday. Well, and some of those will hang on because of the PTSD. Sure. Uh, so when I was trained as a uh, as an 11 Bravo, which is a combat soldier. Okay. And uh, so when I went to Vietnam, that was my assignment. And I realized by watching what was going on that if I stayed in an 11 Bravo, uh, my chances of living were very slim. Uh, perhaps uh, maybe one to two out of ten. You're thinking that to yourself. I'm at, t- at what age? Oh, I was 23 years old. Wow. So I'm I'm thinking that to myself and talking to my comrades mm-hmm. and to my officers, and they say, "Yeah, it's it's a it's a short chance of getting through this." Oh my goodness. Well, so one of my sergeants said to me, uh, he said, "I I think you mentioned you're an artist, and I was. My degree was in commercial art and uh, as a sculptor." And I told him, and he says, you know, you could you could be an artist over here. You don't have to be an 11 Bravo. You don't have to be a combat soldier. And he said, all you have to do instead of being drafted is enlist. You can do that over here. Once you enlist for three years instead of two, mm-hmm. then they'll let you change your MOS. Now, MOS is Military Occupation right. Specialty. So I changed my MOS to an artist, to a, a illustrator smart man yeah well it was it was something i could do sure. uh, give of my service and come out alive yeah so i i did right there and i became a, a an artist and my job was to record the war as an artist would see it uh, so sketching drawing yeah, or we'd photos go, we'd, or we'd go out into the field uh-huh. and we'd we'd ride out in helicopters photograph the wars yeah generally after the scrimmage so I didn't have to shoot anyone. I rarely got shot at, and which is why I'm here to tell the story. Yeah. But I would take photographs and go back to the base camp and paint them. Mm-hmm. Then those paintings would uh, be shipped to the War Historical Library in Washington D.C. And they've had artists in the in the combat situation since uh, since the very first war hmm. was recorded, and uh, they still do. Uh, 
And uh, War Historical Library in Washington, D.C. is something that you should see if you never have. It would be a real treat. Absolutely. But I did see what was going on in the war. I had a taste of it, uh, as close a taste as I would ever hope to get. But um, uh, I think what we saw over there more than anything was what was going on with the people. Sure. And the children. The children. You know, I remember the stories of the kids. We lived in tents. I lived in a place called Tent City B, just outside of Thompson Air Force Base. And everything that we did was in tents. Right. And um, so every morning as we would go to work from our tents over to other tents where we went inside and did our work or or to the air base, uh, we walked past a uh, temporary orphanage. And it was surrounded by concertina wire. And behind the wire were little children from perhaps age 3 to, I'm thinking, 13 or 14. And these skinny, skinny, skinny little children would reach their little hands through the concertina wire and beg for food or whatever we had. Yeah. And so we would always save a little something from chow hall in our pockets so we could hand out to them. And one day, my mother had sent me an apple. I never thought of an apple being precious. All right. But I had an apple in my pocket, and so I handed the apple to a young girl. Perhaps she was, I would think, 8 or 10. And I visited with them for a while, and she started eating the apple at one end and ate it all the way through. Core and everything. And I <laughs> she said, had never had an apple. She'd never before. had an apple. And I say, No, we eat an apple like this. And right. I, I showed her how to eat. She said, No, we don't waste any food. Yeah. So she ate it from one end to the other. Oh, my goodness. Changed my perspective entirely. Yeah. And you have another story about yeah. an even uh, younger child. Yeah. You know, there was a story. It happened to me personally. We were walking again to work. Mm-hmm. We walked past kind of a bombed out building. Uh, it was not occupied. It was perhaps a two-story building. It looked like at one time it might have been a, a retail store of some kind. Mm-hmm. And in front of the store, there were a bunch of cardboard boxes in front of the door, as though they were clogging up the front door so no one would try to go in. And as we walked past the boxes, I saw one of the boxes move. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this isn't good. And we were trained that any time we saw something like that, we would investigate it close enough that we could tell someone to go in and check it out. And so I walked closer to the little box, and as I did, I saw a little foot come out from underneath the box. And it was a, I don't know, a three- to five-year-old child. And uh, so we communicated with them. We had some Vietnamese people with us who could also translate, and I had a little tiny bit of Vietnamese. And uh, found out in conversation with this young lad that uh, both of his parents were gone. Now, whether they'd been killed in the war, we don't know, but but they were not there. He was living on his own. And I asked him if he was hungry, and he says, yeah, he was hungry. So we took him with us. No one was there to care for him, so we'd ask him if he'd come with us, and he did. Took him to a little Vietnamese restaurant that was made out of cardboard. Cardboard and perhaps wood and and maybe some metal from whatever they found Mm -hmm. laying around. That's Mm -hmm. how they made their buildings. And I, I asked the person who was doing the cooking, the chef, well, not hardly a chef, either, sure. a farmer who was cooking, I asked him if he would care for the young man. If I gave him some money, would he watch him for the full month? And he agreed. And I think I gave him $20, as I recall. And so he fed the young man for 
uh, for the full month. And then at the end of that month, I gave him another 20, fed him for another month. And I did this for two or three months. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the little boy became quite friendly. We became friendly sure. with, the, with the guy that had the little restaurant. And, and, uh, and then one day as I went out in the field uh, on an assignment, um, I uh, uh, was in. I was flying in the helicopter. I got really, really sick, and mm-hmm. I told the captain. I says, "Captain, we've got to get on the ground." And um, uh, he said, "Well, uh, you can't be sick. You don't get sick flying." And I said, "No, sir. That isn't it. Or something else." Mm-hmm. So we got on the ground, and I, I got out of the helicopter and walked over to the side of, of where we had uh, landed, and I started throwing up blood, and. Uh, I, so what I had was a, a bleeding ulcer. Oh, jeez! And from and the stress of being from in the a stress of the war, I guess. Zone, yeah. yeah. And so he put me back in the helicopter. I passed out from the lack, lack of blood. I woke up, and when I woke up, I was in Japan. Sure. In medevac, and uh, so I never got to go back to see what happened to this little boy. And you probably always wonder. Always, to oh, this I wonder day. to this day. Yeah. I mean, he would today. He would be. 60 years old. Yeah. And the irony of that story is when when you came home many of you were called baby killers. We were. We'll we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. 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 Take me a moment just to collect my thoughts. Here. Yes, absolutely. But here you are a soldier over there paying special attention to and taking care and befriending the people. I just find that story very ironic. Well, you know, the, here's the, the thought about that. Um, there was a time in America where young people, we think of them as hippies, whether they were or not, sure. the, that era at least, uh, they were told one story. Uh, we were living another. It's true. We were never in Vietnam or in the war. We were never there uh, because we wanted to harm anyone. We were there at first place because they drafted us. Right. Second place, we were patriots. Uh, we we seriously wanted to serve our nation and that nation. And so when we came home from Vietnam, now we're getting back to what you were just sure, alluding to. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I came into San Francisco. That was my base when I came back into uh, Presidio of San Francisco. Very proud of where I had been. Mm-hmm. I, I had by that time become a non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, and I had my ribbons on, my full uniform, my dress uniform, and I was proud. And I thought, well, I'll go downtown and and uh, and and be welcomed as a hero. I remember my father when he came back from World War II was a hero. They had sure. parades for them. So I walked down, uh, took the trolley, and went downtown and went into a restaurant. My first encounter in the restaurant uh, was the owner of the restaurant coming over and he said we don't serve your kind here Uh, I said well what do you mean my kind I'm a soldier I just came back from the war and he says no that's what I mean we don't serve your kind here and he asked me to leave and when I did leave and he escorted me out actually several people followed three or four men and uh, when I got outside they spit on me and they called me baby killer and I was I was not a killer, nor was certainly was I a baby killer. I I, I loved people. I loved humans. You were stereotyped from what they'd been exactly. told what or, they'd or been seen. Told. Which what were they told? I guess I'm not sure. I'm not sure I understand. Do you know, Steve? Do you remember who started yeah, those and, stories? And Where Steve did they come and from? Steve was a Marine. Yeah, you were a Marine. Marine. During Vietnam and experienced well, some it, same it, things. I, I do know it had something to do with the drug culture. 
and with the media and all of those stories were floating. I'm not sure exactly where they started. I think, you know, at the period of time that Jack joined the service, you know, the, the attitude of, of American people at that point, you know, were patriotic. You mm-hmm. know, we were in this for a reason. Uh, uh, we uh, were there to help, mm-hmm. you know, the South Vietnamese and so on in whatever endeavors we could. Sure. Um, um, so, you know, that I, I actually uh, think what happened, you know, is, is like Jack said, you know, that we had the, uh, you know, drugs and all this other stuff going on, you know, during that period of time that maybe changed the perspective that these yeah. people had. Make love, not war. Everything exactly. was peace. And, there and was burn, a very progressive then, movement happening at that burn time. Your and cards, then, burn your draft cards. Sure. And then there was, of course, you know, the uh, National Democratic you know, Convention, you know, and they had people, anti-war uh, personnel there, you know, that were, you know, um, I call, you know, um, speaking their propaganda. Sure, sure. In a sense, you know, it kind of changed their attitude as well. But there's a difference between anti-war and anti-soldier. I mean, everybody knew that. Right. That the young men and women over there were not there because most of them didn't choose to be there. No, they didn't know difference. Well, they they had they no difference. They didn't. No, no. Hmm. If they saw a soldier or ten of us right. or, or a platoon, we were the bad guys. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that changed. I know. I uh, before I joined the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. at the ripe age of eighteen years old, I watched TV for three years. Uh, from 15 until the time I enlisted in mm-hmm. the Marines, uh, about the Vietnam War. And, and what th- did you hear? The massacre at My Lai, or My Lai, excuse me. Uh, and and that was, it made all the news, mm-hmm. uh, besides the fact of all, all these Marines, at least in the TV shows I was watching, you mm-hmm. know, they were centered on the Marines being loaded up, you know, bodies being loaded up in deuce and a half trucks and hauled off and it made you for me it made gave me purpose you know to to go ahead and say i need i, I need to get involved in this mm-hmm. i'm patriotic you know i love my country i want to do what i can and so but there was no thought of your sacrifice or service or the fact that you had lost so many friends and seen such atrocities there was no empathy i think the only ones that cared um, about that were our families sure and the families of the loved ones we lost mm-hmm. i didn't finish one story about when we uh, we went through induction at uh, here in salt lake city at uh, fort douglas three of the young men that went in with me uh, didn't last 30 days mm-hmm. in vietnam and so uh I've seen their names on the wall yeah. in Washington, D.C., and it's, uh, it's very dramatic. Um, but And you still probably remember their faces. Oh, of course. From, of course. Yeah. I remember their names, their faces. Yeah, yeah. I remember the stories they told about being on the farm and how yeah. they came off a farm, and that's why they were, they were good marksmen because we've all shot pistols and rifles since we were children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we all did very well in in training yeah uh, but these boys uh, uh, they went in as the same MOS I had which is 11 Bravo combat soldier and with less than 30 days they were they were killed my goodness 
Now, the hippies didn't care about that. They never even brought it up. They they really didn't care. Did they not know? Were they not educated? Or they well, just didn't care? Just didn't care. They had to see well, TV. Yeah. Well, that, that's where it's all coming from, is that they were watching TV. And what was on TV at the time, you know, portrayed the military as something totally different than what it really was. That's true. And that's, I mean... Agenda-driven, you feel? Yeah. Or just being... Yep. Just broadcasting what they were being fed. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, what bl- was available? I think. Um, I think some of the uh, comments, like "baby killer" and so on, that mm-hmm. we received, were just absolutely a result of what they saw on TV. Mm-hmm. Again, bringing up my life, which it showed the massacre of Vietnamese families, women and children included, by U.S. Army forces. Okay, not to pinpoint that particular group because I'm sure, sure you know it happened in all branches of the service, but I think that's where that caused the American public to look at it and and look at people in uniform and say, right. "You were the symbol." This is what you've good point. Good point. This is what you did. This is what you're doing. And then fueled by the anti-war protests, and you were actually in, involved in one of those. Talk yes. to me about that day and yep. what you saw and, and what you did. Just before I got out of the Marines in 1971 at Cell, uh, we were called, um, our our particular unit at Cell, it was Marine Aviation Detachment, and mm-hmm. we were on a naval missile base itself where we tested aircraft that was being used in Vietnam. So uh, there, um, for couple of years going now, you know, there had been anti-war demonstrations um, on and off. And our, our detachment itself was deployed to assist the California Army National Guard and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department in an anti-war uh, protest that was a thousand strong. And it was difficult for us in, in that sense. Um, simply with our M14s locked and loaded, so on, in uniform, and so on, to then, you know, be, you know, um, not attacked, but, you know, well, I I guess you can say attacked, you know, by the Well, you're the the bad guys, you're the bad guys again. And that's exactly what they were coming after, is they were coming after the people in uniform, with the same kind of comments, you know, you know, like stupid things like, you know, well, you know, how many babies and children and families did you kill, you know, and so on. Not something that you would even be able to respond to. Well, you know, they were just parroting what they heard on television. Exactly. They were almost taught to say Say these words. Sure. And so I think the first time you and I talked about this, you said, well, you must be the one that we've always heard about these stories. Yes, yes. No, it was all of us. Yes. And it was because they were taught to say those words. Well, you were the symbol to me. Yeah. When you you said that, it's like, well, we've we've heard the story. And there's no way being shocked and, and riddled with PTSD that you could ever be able to pull someone aside and articulate what you'd really been through and what it was really all about. And then we get to the real point of the matter. It didn't end mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only thing that ended was our officers told us, take your uniforms off, let your hair grow. 
and blend in simulate into the the culture mm-hmm. and and zip it up and so we did i zipped it up for 40 years and that's part of the problem i didn't tell anyone my family my doctors anyone mm. that i had these nightmares that went on every night and in my nightmares we won't even talk about what went on there i mean sure. they were atrocious and that went on for 40 years until someone at the VA mm-hmm. about 10 years ago said to me, you know, all these things are pinned up inside. It was one of my doctors. Mm-hmm. And and she said, you've got to let this out. She said, I'm going to make you an appointment to see a psychiatrist here at the Veterans Hospital. And and so I went to him and, and I said, well, sir, I've had these nightmares every night for 40 plus years. And he said, well, tell me about them. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll tell you on, on, uh, with one uh, caveat. And he said, what's that? And I said, you turn off your recording device, you don't write it down, and it's between you and I. Sure. And he agreed. So I told him my stories. And after he heard my stories, he said, well, let me just ask you one simple question. Were they, because in my, in my nightmares, I had to take people out. Mm-hmm. That's just a nicer mm-hmm. word. And he said, were they good guys or were they bad guys? I said, no, no, they're always bad guys. They're coming at me to kill me or to kill my family or to kill my neighbors. And he said, and so what you did was valiant. You were protecting yourself and your family and your loved ones. He said, no, you're not in any trouble for that. He said, tell me the rest of the story. So then for the first time, I was allowed to talk about it and maybe make a little peace well make peace within my own heart and to let me know that i was normal as i was as normal as all of the other 500,000 vets that were over there sure and i'm sure you can relate to this steve i think it's fair you know to say that uh, uh none of us wanted to talk about things you know the um literally the verbal abuse and so on that uh, we did put up with, you know, in a society that we thought was behind us, you know, 100%, you know, was just, it it was downright depressing, really was. And that's, you know, that's why when I came home, I had to sit down, you know, and and thank goodness for my mom. Mm -hmm. She sat me down and got me through, you know, some of my feelings. And she said, what you need to do, Stu, is decide how you can resolve that. Well, I did decide. And that's why I spent so many years working for the VA, serving the veterans that I served with. And we thank you for that. You do thank some you. great work. Thank and you. you have for a long time, Steve. Thank you for thank you for your service. And you're right. I mean, it's difficult enough to talk about um, horrific experiences and war. We know from the current conflict, but you add into it the societal pressure and 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 the hatred. And I can see why everybody zipped it up for so long. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing all of you, decades later, finally coming it, forward. Yeah, and, in the late nineties, it. It kind of changed. I don't know when. It was almost changed overnight. Sure. That all of a sudden people would come up to you and they'd say, thank you for your service and welcome home. Right. Now, they did that because the boys were coming back from the Gulf War. Right. 
but they extended it to us. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, we felt like, hey, we could wear a military ball cap. Mm-hmm. And we could wear maybe a jacket that had a military logo on it, and we could be proud again. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I started back then. I still do today. I wear a military hat when I'm driving my car. Well, I know as a longtime VA employee and, and someone who specializes in communication and reaching out to veterans to make sure that they're taking advantage of the benefits, we saw this as an opportunity to re-engage the, the Vietnam veteran with, with the current conflict because we knew that you were hearing and seeing something and it might have just been triggering enough to bring you back to us to give us give us another shot my question is have we done enough to make up for it and where do you think we we stand now what what more can can VA do and I'm sure that um it sounds like our our new combat veterans have have certainly learned from uh, learned from the Vietnam veterans. I know a lot of exactly. Vietnam veterans offer guidance and, 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 and mentoring. Does that make you feel better, any oh, better course. about things? Are we, of course. Are we no, where I, we need to be now? Well, so much better than you were. Oh, so much better. Now, we still haven't had a parade, and, <laughs> and we never will uh, have the parade welcoming us home. That'll never happen. We don't expect that now, but what you are doing has made us feel like we're worthy people Mm -hmm. and we're worthy of having someone help us. We're worthy of telling our story and being totally honest about our story and get it out and talk to our psychiatrist. Uh, here at the VA hospital, uh, I think almost every Vietnamese soldier or the soldier who fought in Vietnam or any other combat comes through the door and we welcome and greet them and care for them as brothers. Right. And it is a whole new world of of treatment. Steve and Jack are uh, volunteers up here at the VA Medical Center. I want to mention this. Um, Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit more about um, Vietnam veterans and some presumptive illnesses. So, of course, enroll for VA health care. If you had a bad experience, you're, you're struggling um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you gave us a shot and it didn't work out. Please come back because like Jack and Steve mentioned, things have changed and it's, it's way different. It's way different now. Um, rules have changed. Um, you know, claim rules have changed. Healthcare rules have changed. Um, and there are certain illnesses and diseases that Vietnam veterans with boots on the ground, um, <clears throat> were, are, are, are prone to. They're called presumptive illnesses uh, because of the exposure to Agent Orange. And let's run through that list quickly, Steve. Um, I'm thinking you know it pretty clearly off the top of your head. I could probably add to some of it. Yeah, I, I can, you know, I can name a few. Sure. In itself. Uh, you know, there's quite a few now. Uh, of course, it all started uh, about 1988 mm-hmm. when VA finally recognized post-traumatic stress disorder sure. uh, instead of battle fatigue or anything else is a cause, you know, for um, some of the mental health issues that a lot of these people were going through. PTSD is pretty much a foregone conclusion now, yep. if yeah. you were boots yep. on yeah. the ground and yeah. in Vietnam, yeah. so you're struggling. And yeah. uh, Well, uh, other things like diabetes. Diabetes? Right. Diabetes. If I was Type exposed two. to Agent Orange, mm-hmm. and so I have diabetes mm-hmm. and neuropathy, heart attack, stroke. So ischemic heart disease, yes. uh, I want to say um, prostate. Cancer, cancer as well 
are are just a few. Mm -hmm. So if you're a Vietnam veteran and you're hearing this and you're like, hey, I have diabetes or, Mm -hmm. hey, I've had heart troubles. Well, Mm -hmm. we need you to get in here and pronto. That's right. And they will take care of you. Yeah. I mean, absolutely you will. will you will find almost immediately the first day they interview you mm-hmm. they're going to say did you have boots on the ground right and if you say yes i had boots on the ground in vietnam they're going to say well, you're entitled to a certain amount of things and and then they tell you what your entitlements are they find out what your illnesses are right and in some cases they can slow them down they can't prevent them some of those illnesses we're going to be we're going to have and we're going to have to live with and they can help with the nightmares as well, as you can attest to, Jack. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to touch on bef- before we go? I know it's it been be kind a, of an emotional 30 minutes or I think so. it's something we have to say is that we're grateful. We're grateful for what we have. And we're exactly. grateful for volunteering where we can help our fellow man. And uh, you've heard me say before, I I never go home at the end of a volunteer day that I don't shed tears. And it's because we 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 have a special feeling with our comrades. Sure. We don't have to tell them what it is. If they know we were there, we know they were there. We speak the same language. You don't even have to say a word. Don't have to say a word. Right. No. Steve. I just I just love the fact that we can now wear our you know marine hats and whatever any kind of you know, military insignia, you know, to identify us, you know, somebody who has served. And, you know, it's like Jack said, you know, they'll they'll see you walking down the street. They know, you know, they have that persona that they can, you know, they can pinpoint, you know, who's a veteran, who's not. I'm I'm happy, you know, just simply for uh, what I've done. And, um, and then I'll continue to do that for as long as I can. And Steve helps us, some of our younger veterans, with their with their claims and helps yep. them navigate the VA system. We so appreciate both of you. Okay, so on March 29th at the VA here in Salt Lake City, uh, we're having a 50th anniversary celebration. For It's not a parade. No, that's but right. We're, we're, we're getting there. Uh, to um, just acknowledge our Vietnam veterans. That's going to be in the lobby starting late morning. We're going to take photographs of every Vietnam veteran that wants their picture taken. And uh, it's just our way of, of giving back a little bit here at VA. Thank you both for being so candid and, and vulnerable. I appreciate it. Thank you for being thanks. part of it yes. and remembering. Thanks for having us. Thank you for your service most of all. And thanks for joining us for another edition of Upholding Valor. We'll see you next time.